Chapter 12 of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. She by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter 12 She. The first care of Job and myself, after seeing to Leo, was to wash ourselves and put on clean clothing for what we were wearing had not been changed since the loss of the Tao. Fortunately, as I think that I have said, by far the greater part of our personal baggage had been packed into the whale-boat, and was therefore saved, and brought hither by the bearers, although all the stores laid in by us for barter and presents to the natives was lost. Nearly all our clothing was made of a well-shrunk and very strong grey flannel, and excellent I found it for travelling in these places because though a Norfolk jacket, shirt, and pair of trousers of it only weighed about four pounds, a great consideration in a tropical country, where every extra ounce tells on the wearer, it was warm, and offered a good resistance to the rays of the sun, and best of all to chills, which are so apt to result from sudden changes of temperature. Never shall I forget the comfort of the wash and brush-up, and of those clean flannels. The only thing that was wanting to complete my joy was a cake of soap, of which we had none. Afterwards I discovered that the Amahagger, who do not reckon dirt among their many disagreeable qualities, use a kind of burnt earth for washing purposes, which, though unpleasant to the touch till one gets accustomed to it, forms a very fair substitute for soap. By the time that I was dressed and had combed and trimmed my black beard, the previous condition of which was certainly sufficiently unkempt, to give weight to Bilali's appellation for me of baboon, I began to feel most uncommonly hungry. Therefore I was by no means sorry when, without the slightest preparatory sound or warning, the curtain over the entrance to my cave was flung aside, and another mute, a young girl this time, announced to me by signs that I could not misunderstand, that is, by opening her mouth and pointing down it, that there was something ready to eat. Accordingly I followed her into the next chamber, which we had not yet entered, where I found Job, who had also, to his great embarrassment, been conducted thither by a fair mute. Job never got over the advances the former lady had made towards him, and suspected every girl who came near him of similar designs. "'These young parties have a way of looking at one, sir,' he would say apologetically, "'which I don't call respectable.' This chamber was twice the size of the sleeping caves, and I saw at once that it had originally served as a refectory, and also probably as an embalming room for the priests of the dead, for I may as well say at once that these hollowed-out caves were nothing more nor less than vast catacombs, in which for tens of ages the mortal remains of the great extinct race whose monuments surrounded us had been first preserved, with an art and a completeness that has never since been equaled, and then hidden away for all time. On each side of this particular rock chamber was a long and solid stone table, about three feet wide by three feet six in height, hewn out of the living rock, of which it had formed part, and was still attached to at the base. These tables were slightly hollowed out or curved inward to give room for the knees of anyone sitting on the stone ledge that had been cut for a bench along the side of the cave at a distance of about two feet from them. Each of them also was so arranged that it ended right under a shaft pierced in the rock for the admission of light and air. On examining them carefully, however, 
I saw that there was a difference between them that had at first escaped my attention, viz. that one of the tables, that to the left as we entered the cave, had evidently been used not to eat upon, but for the purposes of embalming. That this was beyond all question the case was clear from five shallow depressions in the stone of the table, all shaped like a human form, with a separate place for the head to lie in, and a little bridge to support the neck, each depression being of a different size, so as to fit bodies varying in stature from a full-grown man's to a small child's, and with little holes bored at intervals to carry off fluid. And, indeed, if any further confirmation was required, we had but to look at the wall of the cave above it to find it. For there, sculptured all round the apartment, and looking nearly as fresh as the day it was done, was the pictorial representation of the death, embalming, and burial of an old man with a long beard, probably an ancient king or grandee of this country. The first picture represented his death. He was lying upon a couch, which had four short curved posts at the corners, coming to a knob at the end, in appearance something like written notes of music, and was evidently in the very act of expiring. Gathered round the couch were women and children weeping, the former with their hair hanging down their backs. The next scene represented the embalmment of the body, which lay stark upon a table with depressions in it, similar to the one before us, probably, indeed, it was a picture of the same table. Three men were employed at the work, one superintending, one holding a funnel shaped exactly like a port wine strainer, of which the narrow end was fixed in an incision in the breast, no doubt in the great pectoral artery, while the third, who was depicted as standing straddle-legged over the corpse, held a kind of large jug high in his hand, and poured from it some steaming fluid which fell accurately into the funnel. The most curious part of this sculpture is that both the man with the funnel and the man who pours the fluid are drawn holding their noses, either, I suppose, because of the stench arising from the body, or, more probably, to keep out the aromatic fumes of the hot fluid which was being forced into the dead man's veins. Another curious thing which I am unable to explain is that all three men were represented as having a band of linen tied round the face with holes in it for the eyes. The third sculpture was a picture of the burial of the deceased. There he was, stiff and cold, clothed in a linen robe, and laid out on a stone slab, such as I had slept upon at our first sojourning place. At his head and feet burnt lamps, and by his side were placed several of the beautiful painted vases that I have described, which were perhaps supposed to be full of provisions. The little chamber was crowded with mourners, and with musicians playing on an instrument resembling a lyre, while near the foot of the corpse stood a man holding a sheet, with which he was prepared to cover it from view. These sculptures, looked at merely as works of art, were so remarkable that I make no apology for describing them rather fully. They struck me also as being of surpassing interest as representing, probably with studious accuracy, the last rites of the dead as practiced among an utterly lost people. And even then I thought how envious some antiquarian friends of my own at Cambridge would be if ever I found an opportunity of describing these wonderful remains to them. Probably they would say that I was exaggerating, notwithstanding that every page of this history must bear so much internal evidence of its truth that it would obviously have been quite impossible for me to have invented it. To return. As soon as I had hastily examined these sculptures, which I think I omitted to mention were executed in relief, 
we sat down to a very excellent meal of boiled goat's flesh, fresh milk, and cakes made of meal, the whole being served upon clean wooden platters. When we had eaten, we returned to see how Leo was getting on, Bilali saying that he must now wait upon she and hear her commands. On reaching Leo's room, we found the poor boy in a very bad way. He had woke up from his torpor and was altogether off his head, babbling about some boat race on the cam, and was inclined to be violent. Indeed, when we entered the room, Eustane was holding him down. I spoke to him, and my voice seemed to soothe him. At any rate, he grew much quieter, and was persuaded to swallow a dose of quinine. I had been sitting with him for an hour, perhaps. At any rate, I know that it was getting so dark that I could only just make out his head, lying like a gleam of gold upon the pillow we had extemporized out of a bag covered with a blanket, when suddenly Bilali arrived with an air of great importance, and informed me that she, herself, had deigned to express a wish to see me, an honour, he added, accorded to but very few. I think that he was a little horrified at my cool way of taking the honour, but the fact was that I did not feel overwhelmed with gratitude at the prospect of seeing some savage, dusky queen, however absolute and mysterious she might be, more especially as my mind was full of dear Leo, for whose life I began to have great fears. However, I rose to follow him, and as I did so I caught sight of something bright lying on the floor, which I picked up. Perhaps the reader will remember that with the pot-shirt in the casket was a composition scarabaeus marked with a round O, a goose, and another curious hieroglyphic, the meaning of which is Suten se re, or royal son of the sun. The scarab, which is a very small one, Leo had insisted upon having set in a massive gold ring, such as is generally used for signets, and it was this very ring that I now picked up. He had pulled it off in a paroxysm of his fever, or at least I suppose so, and flung it down upon the rock floor. Thinking that if I left it about it might get lost, I slipped it on my own little finger, and then followed Bilali, leaving Job and Eustane with Leo. We passed down the passage, crossed the great isle-like cave, and came to the corresponding passage on the other side, at the mouth of which the guards stood like two statues. As we came, they bowed their heads in salutation, and then lifting their long spears, placed them transversely across their foreheads, as the leaders of the troop that had met us had done with their ivory wands. We stepped between them, and found ourselves in an exactly similar gallery to that which led to our own apartments, only this passage was, comparatively speaking, brilliantly lighted. A few paces down it we were met by four mutes, two men and two women, who bowed low and then arranged themselves, the women in front and the men behind of us, and in this order we continued our procession past several doorways hung with curtains, resembling those leading to our own quarters, and which I afterwards found opened out into chambers occupied by the mutes who attended on she. A few paces more and we came to another doorway facing us, and not to our left like the others, which seemed to mark the termination of the passage. Here two more white, or rather yellow-robed guards were standing, and they too bowed, saluted, and let us pass through heavy curtains into a great antechamber, quite forty feet long by as many wide, in which some eight or ten women, most of them young and handsome, with yellowish hair, sat on cushions working with ivory needles, at what had the appearance of being embroidery frames. These women were also deaf and dumb. 
At the farther end of this great lamplit apartment was another doorway closed in with heavy oriental-looking curtains, quite unlike those that hung before the doors of our own rooms, and here stood two particularly handsome girl mutes, their heads bowed upon their bosoms, and their hands crossed in an attitude of humble submission. As we advanced, they each stretched out an arm and drew back the curtains. Thereupon, Bilali did a curious thing. Down he went, that venerable-looking old gentleman, for Bilali is a gentleman at the bottom, down onto his hands and knees, and in this undignified position, with his long white beard trailing on the ground, he began to creep into the apartment beyond. I followed him, standing on my feet in the usual fashion. Looking over his shoulder, he perceived it. Down, my son, down, my baboon, down onto thy hands and knees, we enter the presence of she, and if thou art not humble, of a surety she will blast thee where thou standest. I halted and felt scared. Indeed, my knees began to give way of their own mere motion, but reflection came to my aid. I was an Englishman, and why, I asked myself, should I creep into the presence of some savage woman, as though I were a monkey in fact, as well as in name? I would not, and could not do it. That is, unless I was absolutely sure that my life or comfort depended upon it. If once I began to creep upon my knees, I should always have to do so, and it would be a patent acknowledgment of inferiority. So fortified by an insular prejudice against kutuing, which has, like most of our so-called prejudices, a great deal of common sense to recommend it, I marched in boldly after Bilali. I found myself in another apartment, considerably smaller than the anteroom, of which the walls were entirely hung with rich-looking curtains of the same make as those over the door. The work, as I subsequently discovered, of the mutes who sat in the antechamber and wove them in strips, which were afterwards sewn together. Also, here and there about the room were settees of a beautiful black wood of the ebony tribe, inlaid with ivory, and all over the floor were other tapestries, or rather rugs. At the top end of this apartment was what appeared to be a recess, also draped with curtains, through which shone rays of light. There was nobody in the place except ourselves. Painfully and slowly, old Bilali crept up the length of the cave, and with the most dignified stride that I could command, I followed after him. But I felt that it was more or less of a failure. To begin with, it is not possible to look dignified when you are following in the wake of an old man writhing along on his stomach like a snake, and then, in order to go sufficiently slowly, either I had to keep my legs some seconds in the air at every step, or else to advance with a full stop between each stride, like Mary Queen of Scots going to execution in a play. Bilali was not good at crawling. I suppose his years stood in the way, and our progress up that apartment was a very long affair. I was immediately behind him, and several times I was sorely tempted to help him on with a good kick. It is so absurd to advance into the presence of savage royalty after the fashion of an Irishman driving a pig to market, for that is what we looked like, and the idea nearly made me burst out laughing then and there. I had to work off my dangerous tendency to unseemly merriment by blowing my nose, a proceeding which filled old Bilali with horror, for he looked over his shoulder and made a ghastly face at me, and I heard him murmur, Oh, my poor baboon! At last we reached the curtains, and here Bilali collapsed flat onto his stomach, with his hands stretched out before him as though he were dead, and I, not knowing what to do, began to stare about the place. 
but presently I clearly felt that somebody was looking at me from behind the curtains. I could not see the person, but I could distinctly feel his or her gaze, and what is more, it produced a very odd effect upon my nerves. I was frightened. I do not know why. The place was a strange one, it is true, and looked lonely, notwithstanding its rich hangings and the soft glow of the lamps. Indeed, these accessories added to, rather than detracted from its loneliness, just as a lighted street at night has always a more solitary appearance than a dark one. It was so silent in the place, and there lay Bilali like one dead before the heavy curtains, through which the odor of perfume seemed to float up towards the gloom of the arched roof above. Minute grew into minute, and still there was no sign of life, nor did the curtain move, but I felt the gaze of the unknown being sinking through and through me, and filling me with a nameless terror, till the perspiration stood in beads upon my brow. At length the curtain began to move. Who could be behind it? Some naked savage queen? A languishing oriental beauty? Or a nineteenth-century young lady drinking afternoon tea? I had not the slightest idea, and should not have been astonished at seeing any of the three. I was getting beyond astonishment. The curtain agitated itself a little, then suddenly between its folds there appeared a most beautiful white hand, white as snow, with long tapering fingers ending in the pinkest nails. The hand grasped the curtain and drew it aside, and as it did so I heard a voice, I think the softest and yet most silvery voice I ever heard. It reminded me of the murmur of a brook. "'Stranger,' said the voice in Arabic, but much purer and more classical Arabic than the Amahagar talk, "'Stranger, wherefore art thou so much afraid?' Now I flattered myself that in spite of my inward terrors I had kept a very fair command of my countenance, and was therefore a little astonished at this question. Before I had made up my mind how to answer it, however, the curtain was drawn, and a tall figure stood before us. I say a figure, for not only the body, but also the face was wrapped up in soft white gauzy material, in such a way as at first sight to remind me most forcibly of a corpse in its grave clothes. And yet I do not know why it should have given me that idea, seeing that the wrappings were so thin that one could distinctly see the gleam of the pink flesh beneath them. I suppose it was owing to the way in which they were arranged, either accidentally or more probably by design. Anyhow, I felt more frightened than ever at this ghost-like apparition, and my hair began to rise upon my head as the feeling crept over me that I was in the presence of something that was not canny. I could, however, clearly distinguish that the swathed, mummy-like form before me was that of a tall and lovely woman, instinct with beauty in every part, and also with a certain snake-like grace which I had never seen anything to equal before. When she moved a hand or foot, her entire frame seemed to undulate, and the neck did not bend, it curved. "'Why art thou so frightened, stranger?' said the sweet voice again, a voice which seemed to draw the heart out of me, like the strains of softest music. "'Is there that about me that should affright a man? Then surely are men changed from what they used to be.' And with a little coquettish movement she turned herself, and held up one arm, so as to show all her loveliness and the rich hair of raven blackness that streamed in soft ripples down her snowy robes, almost to her sandaled feet. "'It is thy beauty that makes me fear, O queen,' I answered humbly, 
scarcely knowing what to say, and I thought that as I did so, I heard old Bilali, who was still lying prostrate on the floor, mutter, Good, my baboon, good. I see that men still know how to beguile us women with false words. Ah, stranger, she answered, with a laugh that sounded like distant silver bells. Thou wast afraid because mine eyes were searching out thine heart, therefore wast thou afraid. Yet being but a woman, I forgive thee for the lie, for it was courteously said. And now tell me, how came ye hither to this land of the dwellers among the caves, a land of swamps and evil things, and dead old shadows of the dead? What came you here for to see? How is it that ye hold your lives so cheap as to place them in the hollow of the hand of Haya, into the hand of she who must be obeyed? Tell me how also come ye to know the tongue I talk. It is an ancient tongue, that sweet child of the old Syriac. Liveth it yet in the world? Thou seest I dwell among the caves and the dead, and naught know I of the affairs of men, nor have I cared to know. I have lived, O stranger, with my memories, and my memories are in a grave that mine hands hollowed, for truly has it been said that the child of man maketh his own path evil. And her beautiful voice quivered, and broke in a note as soft as any woodbird's. Suddenly her eye fell upon the sprawling frame of Bilali, and she seemed to recollect herself. Ah, thou art there, old man. Tell me how it is that things have gone wrong in thine household. Forsooth it seems that these my guests were set upon. Ay, and one was nigh to being slain by the hot-pot to be eaten by those brutes thy children, and had not the others fought gallantly, they too had been slain, and not even I could have called back the life which had been loosed from the body. What means it, old man? What hast thou to say that I should not give thee over to those who execute my vengeance? Her voice had risen in her anger, and it rang clear and cold against the rocky walls. Also I thought I could see her eyes flash through the gauze that hid them. I saw poor Bilali, whom I had believed to be a very fearless person, positively quiver with terror at her words. Oh, Haya! Oh, she! he said, without lifting his white head from the floor. Oh, she! As thou art great, be merciful, for I am now, as ever, thy servant to obey. It was no plan or fault of mine, O she, it was those wicked ones who are called my children. Led on by a woman whom thy guest the pig had scorned, they would have followed the ancient custom of the land, and eaten the fat black stranger who came hither with these thy guests, the baboon and the lion who is sick, thinking that no word had come from thee about the black one. But when the baboon and the lion saw what they would do, they slew the woman, and slew also their servant, to save him from the horror of the pot. Then those evil ones, I, those children of the wicked one who lives in the pit, they went mad with the lust of blood, and flew at the throats of the lion and the baboon and the pig. But gallantly they fought, oh, Haya, they fought like very men, and slew many, and held their own, and then I came and saved them, and the evildoers have I sent hither to Kor to be judged of thy greatness, oh, she, and here they are. I, old man, I know it and to-morrow will I sit in the great hall and do justice upon them, fear not. And for thee, I forgive thee, though hardly, see that thou dost keep thine household better. Go. Bilali rose upon his knees with astonishing alacrity, bowed his head thrice, and his white beard sweeping the ground, crawled down the apartment as he had crawled up it, till he finally vanished through the curtains, 
leaving me, not a little to my alarm, alone with this terrible but most fascinating person. End of chapter 12